Hi, I'm Aviva Rumani, and welcome to episode 27 of Kindred Cast, Lion Tree's bi-weekly podcast featuring insights from deal makers and thought leaders from the world of tech, media, and everything in between. On today's show, our executive in residence and member of parliament, Ed Vasey, chats with Julius Janikowski of the leading private equity firm, The Carlyle Group, and who also served as FCC chairman during the Obama administration. This interview comes at a very interesting time in the TMT landscape, as every day the news is filled with discussions around net neutrality, potential regulation of tech companies such as Facebook, and the pending AT&T Time Warner transaction. Julius graduated with highest honors from Columbia and later Harvard Law School, serving on the Harvard Law Review with Barack Obama, and later becoming the president's trusted advisor on all things tech. Before the FCC, Julius was a senior executive helping Barry Diller build the e-commerce and media company IAC. I hope you enjoy this interesting conversation. My name's Ed Vasey. I'm an executive in residence at Liontree. And back in the day, I was the UK telecoms minister under Prime Minister David Cameron. And in that role, I had the privilege of meeting my guest who I'm about to interview. That's Julius Genikowski. Julius is now a partner at the Carlyle Group, investing in tech, media and telecom. But more interesting from my perspective, I think, is that he was President Obama's chairman of the Federal Communications Commission from 2009 to 2013. Julius is well known for having transformed the agency in his time. He focused it on wired and wireless broadband and modern communications technologies. And also he took a series of strong actions around net neutrality, new spectrum auctions, blocking mergers but approving others, extending broadband access, tackling hard issues around public safety communications. And in fact, during uh, Julius's tenure, Wired magazine called the FCC one of the top seven disruptions. Welcome, Julius. Thank you. Very good to see you. It's good to be doing this with my entry, Ed, and uh, it's good to be doing this with you. And forgive me, but Thank you for your service. And, you know, we're two people who've worked both in government and in the private sector. Just a quick note to say, I think that's a big deal. You know, we're both different sides of the Atlantic participating in this great experiment of democracy. And it's only going to work if we get talented people in government, much more talented than you and me. (laughs) And I really do think we need more people who are citizens, business people coming into government and helping make our democracies work. Well, that's great. I love the world of telecoms. I still do love the world of telecoms. I find it absolutely fascinating. And there are huge public policy issues surrounding it, which we debated with great vigour. Sometimes it's said that Britain and America are two countries that are separated by a common language. And one of the phrases that meant, to a certain extent, different things across the pond was net neutrality. Net neutrality was not a big deal in the UK, although I'm going to come to why it became a big deal in Europe later on as we discuss it. But it was a huge deal in the US. In fact, I think in one of President Obama's elections, it actually became an election issue. And anyone listening to this podcast will know that net neutrality in the US is in a bit of a mess today. So I wanted to ask you, where do you think we are on net neutrality? How do we get to where we are at the moment? And where do you think it's going to go? Sure. The FCC, under its current leader, has repealed the net neutrality rules that were in place. So no net neutrality rules on the books. This was entirely predictable based on his prior statements where the Republican Party had been. Just as it's predictable that if the Democrats come into power, we'll see net neutrality rules back on the book. And so it's this unfortunate 
situation there where this issue has fallen into another one of a number of polarized issues where the rules end up changing from administration to administration, which for commercial rules really don't do businesses any good. How did we get here? We had a chance on this issue in the U.S. to resolve it in a way that would have had a a lasting impact that would have created ongoing certainty. When I became FCC chairman in 2009, it had been an issue and it was somewhat divisive. On one side, there were, and this is you know much earlier in the days of the internet, there were internet advocates who thought that it was essential that there be rules on the books to preserve the freedom and openness of the internet. You know, back then on the telecom and broadband cable side, there was a strong feeling that there shouldn't be any rules no matter what. For my sins, when I took office, I decided I would try to take it on and see if it could be an area where we could have some consensus, put some rules into place that would last and that would make sense. And this is an issue that, you know, generated petitions with millions of signatures. Quite a technical issue, a telecom regulation issue that generated millions of signatures from concerned voters. It's a technical issue, but it also affects what people can access on the internet. So from a consumer perspective, it affects, do you have the ability to know that if you go to the internet and you click on, you want to click on a link, you'll get to it. Same thing on your mobile devices. From the perspective of startup entrepreneurs, it's the flip side of that. Do you have the confidence if you're a startup entrepreneur, if you put up something on the internet, that it'll actually get seen? But it was incredibly divisive. And we tried hard for a period of time to bring together the cable companies, the telecom companies, the wireless companies on one side, big tech, startup tech on the other side, actually made a ton of progress and got to a point where, and I'm skipping over a lot of the painful steps. This took many, many months, but we actually came to an agreement on a relatively simple set of rules, no blocking, no throttling, no paid prioritization, no unreasonable discrimination. And a way to put the rules in place in the U.S., so-called Title I instead of Title II, that almost everyone involved in that effort could support. So you had to find a way to give the FCC a role as well, of course, because telecoms regulation was invented before the internet. Yeah, it's true. You know, the FCC has independent authority under the Communications Act. It's been updated a number of times, but there was a question about whether the FCC had the authority or under what provisions of the Communications Act it would have the authority to regulate internet service providers. Big debate between Title I and Title II. We can get into it if you really want no, to, no. Ed. I do know you were sued regularly, weren't you? Uh, <laughs> there's no way the to American way. The deal that we struck was one where there was broad agreement to put rules on the books, but to do it under the light touch section of the statute. And everyone from all the industries, with one exception, was willing to support that. There was exactly one telecom company that decided not to support it, and to your point, that decided to sue. It was unfortunate because if that hadn't happened, there would have been rules on the books. I think they would have become part of the landscape. And I don't know that there would have been as energetic uh, an attempt to repeal them. We're in a situation where Chairman Pai has uh, rolled back the rules. What is going to happen in the landscape, do you think? So there'll be litigation for a while. There's some uh, interesting ways the litigation could go. But I think we're going to see this become a political issue on an ongoing basis for some time. And so what net neutrality rules look like, whether we have them or don't have them, will depend on who wins elections in the future that may or may not be the single issue that 
drives voters. I think it'll be a relevant issue. Can I play devil's advocate for a bit? Because we're going to move on to this subject anyway. But obviously, you know, the internet is now dominated by the so-called fangs, you know, big, big companies, Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, Google, huge bandwidth, using up a huge amount of bandwidth on the networks. Aren't the telecom companies entitled to say, look, we're dealing as equal partners. If anything, we, the telcos, are the unequal partners here. We should be allowed to negotiate carriage rules with these guys. It's a great question. And the net neutrality rules are not about helping Google negotiate deals, not about helping Netflix or helping, you know, the other very large successful technology companies. They are about the next generation of startups and whether they'll have a chance to compete, whether they'll have a chance to have access to consumers. And that's a central issue. And I think it remains one to be concerned about. One of the reasons net neutrality wasn't such a big issue in the UK, at least, was because we felt we had more competition. We had more operators, telco operators in the field, whereas in the US, you effectively have two, and in many areas, just one, which is why I think net neutrality was such a big deal in the US, because a quasi-monopoly could control the traffic, whereas it was felt in the UK, if, if one company wanted to play hardball in terms of net neutrality, consumers could simply switch to another. I think that's right. I think the limited nature of competition in the pipes to the homes had an effect on how policymakers in the U.S. looked at it. You know, other drivers in the U.S. were a venture community that wanted to make sure that the companies they were backing would continue to have access to the internet going forward. So we, in fact, in Europe ended up with a net neutrality law, and it was fascinating to see how it came about because in the U.K. we had a code of conduct, but it was interesting that it was the Eastern Bloc countries that drove a net neutrality law in Europe because they were terrified of Russian domination of cyberspace. So they wanted to ensure that uh, Russian network operators couldn't block Estonian content, for example. So in the end, the UK did end up having a net neutrality law, but for a very different reason. The other thing that's happened on both sides of the Atlantic is that from a sort of business norm perspective, net neutrality has become what consumers expect. And at some level, that'll exert some, I don't know if calming influence is the right word. Mm, a realistic approach. There's a public downside to going too far yeah. and trying to change the internet into a non-open platform. Exactly. So we talked about, or I sort of mentioned in passing, the dominance of some big internet companies and the dominance of big companies. So when you were at the SEC, you blocked the AT and T-Mobile deal. You approved Comcast, NBC, Universal. Now we've got AT and T and Time Warner which looks very similar to the Comcast deal. What's your take on where that's going to go? Yeah, it's become highly political. Well, certainly it's in litigation. So first, there's an irony to point out, which is in the same government at the same time, the FCC is saying in the net neutrality context that we shouldn't worry about vertical integration and the risk that that might lead to favoring or disfavoring content through distribution channels. And that's the FCC. And at the Justice Department, they're obviously suing on the theory that we do have to worry about vertical integration and the risk that there'll be favoritism inside. So that's interesting. Why the shift at the DOJ from Comcast NBC to AT&T Time Warner? And, and they did shift. The, the DOJ decided not to sue in the former. It sued in the latter. People speculate that it has something to do with CNN. I don't know. I'm not a mind reader a couple of points that are worth emphasizing, which is that everyone should agree that a news outlet's views should have no effect on government action, antitrust action, other kinds of action. And so I hope that's not the case here. At the end of the day, I do think 
this isn't litigation, uh, may or may not settle beforehand, but assuming it goes to trial, I do think at the end of the day, it'll be decided on the merits by a respected and independent judge, which sort of gets us to the merits of, all right, what do we think about this transaction from a competition perspective? As you mentioned, when the Comcast NBC deal came to the FCC, ultimately we approved that with conditions. One of the ways I think that it's useful to think about a vertical integration is to think about both sides of the combination. Vertical integrations can definitely be problematic if one side or the other is highly concentrated, because then a company can leverage its power on one side to the other side. So it's interesting to think about this one from that lens. So it's a combination of content and distribution. This is AT&T Time Warner. On the content side, it's hard to argue that it's not a very competitive landscape. Massively competitive. It brings us to distribution. There are two distribution components in the deal. There's DirecTV, which is interesting to think about. You know, DirecTV only plays in the pay TV space, not in the broadband space. If you're looking at the pay TV market, you have another satellite provider plus two or three cable providers. So I think tricky to argue that there's insufficient competition there. ATT's in mobile as well, but you have, you know, probably five or more mobile carriers now in the U.S. Comcast has launched in their first year. They're up to over 400,000 subscribers. So when you get to the merits of it, I think, you know, analyze that way, it starts to become hard. What we concluded at the FCC with Comcast NBC was there are some risks, but those could be managed through narrowly drawn conditions and limited government role in interfering with deals that make sense from a business perspective. So... Putting words straight in your mouth, it's clear that if you were at the FCC, you'd clear the AT&T deal. <laughs> you know, listen, one, one, one of my policies, I'm sure you had the same one, is that I, I never Don't prejudged. Don't second guess your successes. Uh, uh, no, no, no. Right. Well, look, I kept an open mind on everything until I had a chance to review the facts. And so I don't know, but it does feel like it's a hard case to prove. We'll see how that plays out. By the way, the other thing that was relevant then is even more relevant now is the lens through which one looks at the competitive landscape. It's possible to look at the competitive landscape in these areas and put the large technology companies on the side, Google, Apple, Facebook, Amazon, Netflix. But we know from a business perspective that the role those companies are playing in the landscape are part of what's driving companies in content and distribution to look to build up scale to compete with them. Exactly. And so you'd think that that would be part of the analysis too. In the UK with the Fox Sky takeover, the regulators' conclusions were somewhat negative based on Sky's dominance of news. And yet, if you read the report, it doesn't take into account the fact that most people now get their news from the internet, from Facebook, from Google or whatever. So it's pretty extraordinary. But I think government has made mistakes, certainly in the US, on sticking in the old paradigm for too long. For example, you know, one of the things I tried to do at the FCC, but I wasn't as successful as I would have liked, was eliminate rules that made it illegal for a single entity to own both newspapers and TV stations. Oh, yeah. And it was pretty clear back, this is in 2009, 2010, 2011, that both broadcasting and newspapers were under real challenge from new technologies. Exactly. And if you could have combined news resources and go to market that way, politically, it was... Um, it, uh, yeah, we, we, we had crazy situations in the UK where the competition regulator would intervene in the merger between two local newspaper groups, which seemed to me completely crazy given the climate. But We, we always fight the last war. Looking at the fangs now, what, what do you think is going to happen in terms of regulating these big, gigantic internet companies? Again, from a European perspective, we're seeing the European Commission taking a really strong line. 
particularly with Google. And a lot of people are saying the commission did the same with Microsoft. It's now doing, to a certain extent, the US regulators' work. I think we're in an unbelievably interesting time when you look at the landscape of big technology companies, Google, Amazon, Apple. They've each built incredible businesses in their original line, expanding into others, Google and search, Amazon and e-commerce, creating tremendous value, obviously for shareholders, but for consumers who have all sorts of new products that they didn't have before these companies existed competing on pricing. We're getting things at lower costs, in many cases for free, that we didn't have before. And we're also now starting to see these companies compete against each other. And in fact, when you look at it from a global perspective, you can throw in Alibaba and Tencent. And it's hard to imagine a time when we've had as many large, innovative companies competing against each other on this new platform. I think that's relevant in thinking about what is likely to happen. I'll speak for the US on these companies. I think because of all of that, it seems to me that the extreme case of the government in the US moving to break up the large tech companies is just extremely unlikely. Will we see more government focus on particular issues where there are problems? Anti-competitive behavior. Specific is where government can clearly intervene could be specific anti-competitive behavior or other issues as these technologies become so central to our lives. You know, everyone who's following the news understands that something happened in the election around social media. And so regulations like requiring that internet or mobile or social sites that take advertising disclose who's buying the advertising, that's simply taking regulations that apply in the U.S. on broadcasting and similar media to this new world. So it seems you know possible to likely that those kinds of regulations could happen. We'll definitely see scrutiny from the regulatory agencies of attempts to abuse market position. But I think we'll see it against this backdrop of the consumer benefits are quite enormous. And we're seeing competition between those companies. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, in Europe, we're used to broadcasters being regulated much more than they are in the US, particularly in terms of objectivity and balance and so on. And it seems to me that internet regulation of the big internet companies splits into two parts. One is the straightforward competition regulation. But there is this what I tend to call tech in the public square regulation that combating fake news, making sure that some of the really injurious stuff that's put on the internet on these platforms is taken down rapidly and so on, copyright enforcement, all of that stuff. I mean, I always felt when I was a minister in the UK that I couldn't do much because not a lot was happening in the US. Do you think it's going to step up a gear? And and who's going to be doing it? Yeah, I think in terms of content regulation in the US, I don't see it stepping up. I, I think kind of core free speech, First Amendment principles are very strong. I really don't think we'll see, I hope we don't see government attempts to regulate content. So fake news gets regulated by saying who your advertiser is? Transparency requirements for political ads are in a different category, I think, different from saying, hey, we government don't like your content And so you're not allowed to air it or we're going to take away your license. That would be very inconsistent with a long tradition of valuing free speech in the United States. I don't think it will happen, but it's also worth noticing that there are more and more people saying, hey, wait a minute, maybe we should do that. Maybe the libel laws give journalists too much leeway. You know, maybe we do need to have the government play a more active role in regulating content. I think that'll be resisted. I think it should be resisted. Do you get a sense that the companies themselves want to play ball? They want to be seen to be more responsible? Do they think it's a business problem? 
I think they do. I think they see the risk of a business problem, of a brand problem, separate from whether or not the government regulates. Yeah, exactly. Parents want to make sure that when their kids go on the internet, someone is paying attention to what's there so that they don't stumble into something really awful. So all of the different companies that are sitting between kids and content, I do think they're taking it seriously. I also think that the challenges are vast. You know, you see some of these companies announcing that they're going to hire 10,000 people to, to do this. But I think it shows the seriousness with which they're taking it. And it's something that's ultimately measurable. You know, if you're any of those companies, it just takes one video that appropriately offends parents or that shows violence or something like that, and you're held accountable for it. So I do think there's brand risk to all the companies in the space and a lot of motivation for them to figure out the technological solutions to address it. So one random issue that I know you took a great interest in when you were chairman of the FCC and came across my desk as well when I was a minister is, you know, we're all spending all our time online, but if we're in trouble, we still have to pick up the phone and dial 911. I think there's been a spectrum allocation recently for emergency services networks in the US. You had a big challenge to try and modernise the emergency services network when you were chairman. I think we both saw the same thing when we were in government, which was that the gap between communications in the commercial arena and what was happening in public safety, also military, was large and getting larger and that that needed to be addressed. There's so many different examples. Sending text to 911. Very few kids use voice phones anymore. We don't have the system set up yet where they can text 911. Location accuracy for 911 in a mobile world. If you're on your mobile device and you call or even text, hopefully if it should come to pass, the first responders have a harder time knowing where you are than when you call from your landline. Well, that's fixable technologically. And in both of these areas, when I was at the FCC, and I'm proud of this, we took steps to move public safety communications and the carriers to greater location accuracy for 911, text to 911. And the other thing that we did that was in the news recently for different reasons than were intended, emergency mobile alerts. So anyone who grew up in the US remembers the broadcast alerts. There would be these tests on our system. And that was, you know, for decades and decades, the only way that the government had to send an alert to the community, to citizens, that something was wrong. Fortunately, it wasn't used very often. Anyone with a cell phone can see that, wow, it can have tremendous value if the government can send an alert to you, by the way, particularly if they can send it to particular locations instead of countrywide in a hurricane or a flood, encouraging people to evacuate or to stay in their homes or whatever it is that the public safety authorities want people to do. Mobile devices really lend themselves to that. And so when I was at the FCC with the cooperation of people like Michael Bloomberg in New York and others who were very helpful, we got the U.S mobile alert system going. It's up and running. It's largely a success story, although there's still a lot more work to do. It's saving lives in natural disasters. It's available in the case of, uh, you know, hopefully we won't have any terrorist incidents. Occasionally things go wrong. And so in the last few months, there was an unfortunate incident in Hawaii where someone sent one of these mobile alerts telling people that missiles were coming and it was wrong. And it took about 50 minutes, I think, to correct it. So that's that And I think the architecture in the bunker was terrible. It was so easy to send this mistaken text. Yeah, but you and I both know from our background, every technology 
can be used in good ways and bad ways. And, you know, our responsibility as a society, this goes back millennia, is to take new technologies, whether it's a pencil, a calculator, a computer, mobile phones, steel, figure out how to use them for good, to make the world a better place, and also be honest with ourselves about the risks and the dangers and as a society, tackle the risks and dangers. Being aware of the risks and dangers doesn't make you a Luddite. One of the central duties of anyone in government in this space now is to get that balance right. And by the way, it extends to all of us in communities as parents and our businesses, making sure that you know social norms, codes of conduct, other things recognize the realities of new technologies, both the opportunities and the risks. Great. Last question. You're now an investor. Yes. Do you have any thoughts on the year ahead in terms of investment in this TMT space? There'll be a lot of people listening here who are either running these companies or investing in them. Is there any kind of trend that obviously is not confidential and secret to the Carlisle secret source, but that you uh, see as you survey this landscape? Sure. So as you indicated, I'm very happy to be at the Carlisle Group investing in tech media, telecom. In some ways, I think the big trends are not secrets. Software is eating the world, as Mark Andreessen said. The cloud is a massive trend. Mobile and social are massive trends. What we're finding at Carlisle is that the challenge and the opportunity is to find great leaders, great management teams, tackling big problems. We're not startup investors. We invest later stage. So we're looking at companies that have already proven out that they can use software to develop a product that has an enormous value proposition for enterprises, for example. And what we'll look to do at Carlisle is back a management team and then make our Carlisle platform available to help them scale. We're a multi-sector fund. So we have 250 portfolio companies around the world across not only tech media telecom, but aerospace and defense, industrial and transportation, healthcare, consumer. We're global. So we have investment professionals, portfolio companies on the ground in every continent around the world. And that's how we operate. Look for great companies and great sectors with great management teams where we can help accelerate growth and take advantage of these big, broad technology trends. Brilliant. Well, Julius, thank you very much. Thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. Great. Ed. Thanks. Great to be here. I hope you enjoyed our show today. If you want to check out any prior episodes, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you listen. Feel free to leave a review there as it helps people find the show. You can always follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at KindredCast for behind-the-scenes photos and info. Keep listening and see you next time. Audiation.